0: Ready? All right, let's get started. So I read a story about a church, it was a church of about 7,000 people and they had been without a senior pastor for a while and they finally hired somebody and the church was amped. It was the Sunday that the new pastor was gonna start and all the people who had been missing in action for like the past few months showed up. The house was packed, but as people first started arriving, there was a little glitch in the way the Sunday was supposed to go because as the first few people were coming into church, there was a homeless person giving himself a little bit of a shower with the hose right by the front door. Like this is not, this is not the way it's supposed to go. We just planted brand new flowers by the entryway and you're stepping on them. And so they kind of said, hey, okay, we, we need you to move along. And he said, okay, he parked his shopping cart by the bush and went inside and helped himself to some coffee. And the security team, because it's a larger church, they're kind of looking like, what do we do? Well, we can't like just throw the dude out, but we also don't want to have a messed up Sunday. It's our, our new pastor's introduction Sunday. Everything's supposed to be perfect. And as the homeless man finishes his cup of coffee, he refills it and he heads straight into the auditorium. Not only does he go into the auditorium, he sits front and center. And the whole place is filling up, but that one row only has two people in it, the homeless guy and the security team member who decides to sit right next to him. And there's some concern because, you know, we don't know, is he mentally stable? We don't know, is he on any of those lists that are out there for people who have done terrible things? Like, we don't know who this person is, and there's a lot of discomfort in the rows around him who see him. And as the service starts, the homeless man is looking around, and the only interaction he gets is either getting ignored or having piercing eyes on him, like, I am ready to tackle you and beat you if you make one wrong move. And the elders come up and they introduce the pastor and the homeless man begins to stand up and the security man begins to grab his arm and the, el- the elder of the church says, no, it's okay. And he walks up and he introduces himself this way. Oof, and these are tough words, I think. He said, today I see a gathering of people, not a church of Jesus Christ. For in the day of judgment, And we know what a church is supposed to be, but we are usually blinded by what a church is. James McDonald is the pastor of Harvest Church in Illinois, and he conducted this same experiment with his church. His church is a multi-location church, and he went and sat outside of his church, his church congregations on different Sundays, and he he wore a wig that gave him longer hair and he enhanced his beard some and he did the same. And when he told his congregation about what it was like, he was in tears because he said, I am so proud of you because so many of you stopped and prayed with me. So many of you stopped and you went and got food for me. So many of you asked how I was and if I needed anything. And I'm so proud of you, church. Now here's the thing. Both churches should have both heard the same message. Both churches hold the same Bible in their hand. Both churches claim the same Christ. Both churches would probably recite the same gospel message to you. And both churches should have had the same anointing and empowering of God. But one church was living differently. And the whole thrust, the whole force of scripture is that our lives would be transformed by the message, that it would impact what we do, what we say, how we live, how we serve, how we give, the way that our entire life is lived should be changed. And this is, this is the problem that so many churches have the same message, but they are not transformed. And I want to encourage, I want to challenge, as we look at this week's section of the story, I'm in a difficult spot because I have four different series that would flow out of just this one chapter that we read. I can't get it all in one message. I'm going to try to hit some of the key points, but we're looking at the life of David. And this is one of the incredible things about the life of David. His young life started in this place where he was anointed as the future king at about 10 to 15 years old. He knew what his future would be, but he had to live a present and he had choices about how he was supposed to live. I want to give you a little information about his anointing and how it affected the way that he, he began to live and the way that he, he shepherded because that's really what became his career for that next point. Um, if you read, you're familiar with some of this, but don't worry if you didn't read, you're not going to miss a beat. I'm going to bring you through it. The, same, the, the prophet Samuel brought, was given a message from God and he said, go to Bethlehem and find Jesse because one of his sons I've selected as the future king. And so Samuel the prophet went, and as he approached, he he talked to Jesse and said, bring me your sons. And and Jesse has eight sons, and and Jesse brought seven of them. And the first one, like most oldest children, the first one was pretty sure he was going to be the new king. And as Samuel looked at him, he was like, dude, he looks the part. Like that's got to be the one that God has selected. But I want to show you in verse 6, And we'll put this up on the screen as I read it. It says, when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, first of all, let's just rest in this concept for one moment where the Lord doesn't see people as people see them, but the Lord looks at the heart. And if you ever think for one moment that the Lord is fooled by something, understand that he is a perfect judge, that from before the beginning to the end, he knows all things. And if you think that you can give him lip service, and if you think you will have an argument with him at one point that you would say, well, I know that I never lived for you at all, but I said one prayer one time. And I prayed the thing about Jesus in my heart and in my mind. And I prayed that thing. If you've been around Gulfside for a little bit, I I rehearse this passage frequently that Jesus describes the end time. And he will say, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do many miracles in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And he will say plainly to them, I never knew you. Jesus defines love as those who follow my commands. So the way that we live, God looks at how we live and he looks at the heart And he is the perfect judge who can perfectly balance. Here is where you gave your effort and you tried and you failed, but I saw your effort and I saw your heart. And he knows your capacities because he's enabled them. And when you decide to just go into coast mode, he knows that as well. Jesus also described this condition of the heart. He said, it's like seed that falls along paths. Some seed falls amongst thorns and the thorns are the worries of this life that choke out the the spiritual growth that is supposed to happen in you. Some seed falls in places where the roots can't get down. They don't get any depth. And so that that faith dies as well. But some seed falls on good soil. The seed is the message of the gospel and it grows down roots and and it grows into something that produces fruit. And that's what a real spiritual life is. So God is this perfect judge. If you're worried, oh, other people are faking Christians, don't worry about them, worry about you. God is a perfect judge. He will handle them. God will discern and he will pick who he will work through and he will bring justice. But within yourself, are you striving? Are you working? Are you being all that God has called you to be in this season? Because things happen in seasons. And this is the incredible thing. Uh, So Samuel gets this message from God that he looks at the heart and he goes through all of the seven sons that are there. And then as he gets through the seventh son, each one, God is like, no, it's not him. No, it's not him. And then he, he has the faith to do this. I see this as the faith of Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 11. It says, Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have to Jesse? I think this is an interesting faith point. Um, the, the, the faith of Samuel in this passage, he says, I heard from God that one of your sons is supposed to be the next king but those ones aren't supposed to be the next king. So so what's going on here? Because I know I heard from God. And I wanted to just rest on this for a minute because when you hear from God about something, you should have the confidence to say that if it isn't happening, there's something wrong with the situation, not something wrong with what I've heard from God. Like if scripture tells me that I am supposed to do something and it's supposed to go well with me, that whether, even if it doesn't work out financially or if that doesn't work out in the eyes of society, I know that I did what I am supposed to do and I will be content in that because God called me to do this. Do you have the faith to see that the situation will change before the word of God will change in your life? That his word is always true, that it always comes to fruition, that it never goes out and returns void. The word of God always accomplishes its purpose. And so Samuel had this kind of faith that when he was presented, quote, all of the sons and it wasn't one of them, he's like, okay, so what's missing? Because I heard from God, one of your sons was going to be king and none of these sons are going to be king. What's going on? Where's the other son? And Jesse said, oh, well, he, he's out in the field. He's just a boy. He's, he's somewhere, somewhere around 10 years old to 15 years old right now. I have these other sons that are much better, much better looking, much stronger, much more mentally ready for something like that. And as David comes, God speaks to Samuel and says, yes, this is the king. And so David gets anointed as king, as a tween. This is a terrible plan. I wanna give you clarity. He's not king yet. Saul is still king over the nation, but David is anointed as the next king. And this is a cool part of the, the, this section of scripture, I think, because David knows. And it says that at that point, the spirit of God filled David in an incredible way. And then you know what David got to do? Go shepherd some more sheep, king boy. You're king of the sheep now. And he had seven older brothers who just got rejected publicly. How do you think they felt about David? God's anointing and call on David's life, first of all, I don't think it made David's life immediately any easier, especially in relationship with his brothers. But second, he did not immediately just get to grab a hold of this new calling from God. I'll compare it to a few things. Man, I'll I'll tell you, I believe it was a godly desire that was set into my heart as a young man, as 17 and 18 years old, when I began my relationship with Christ, I knew I wanted to be a father and I would be called to be a father one day, to have my own children, to have a functional, as best as I could make it function, family. But I knew that in order to be a dad one day, I had to live in a certain way today and as a 17 or 18 year old child who knew that I wanted to be a father in order to see that come to fruition. It wasn't okay. Let me go get somebody pregnant because God has called me to be a father. So I should have a baby ASAP marriage or not. No, that's not the way it works. So often God will put a calling, a desire, a dream on your heart or an anointing for a ministry and a purpose and he'll put that on you and he'll put you into a season of preparation. And often we will look at that season of preparation with an absolute contempt. I'm supposed to be king and here I am getting bitten by sheep. What sense would that make? God, why would you bring me out here to deal with these stinking animals? If I'm supposed to be in the palace on the throne, people are supposed to be feeding me grapes and here I am feeding sheep grass. What is going on? Listen, the thing that's really close to your heart that you say, I'm supposed to have this, but I don't have it yet. God is not wasting your time. God is not punishing you. Well, I believe that God is preparing you. I love this quote, and I've heard a bunch of different pastors use this. But for those of you guys who are like, I'm waiting on that spouse. I'm waiting on that perfect spouse. And this season of waiting, it's not waiting. This should be a season of preparation because if you find the right person before you are the right person, the right person will be the wrong person for you. And to have the desire to be married or to be married again, that is a good godly desire. But if God has you in a season of singleness, you don't miss the fact that this isn't just waiting, this is preparation time. And so often you'll be like, but this just doesn't look like preparation. Part of the pathway to the nation of Israel discovering David is the king that they needed, was the story that most of us know about David, and that's David and Goliath. And I'm going to break that story down in a minute. I'm going to probably ruin that story for some of you guys. I apologize, but we got to see it for what it is. But understand, David's time was spent with the sheep and it was spent with a club or a shepherd's staff and a sling and a stone. And he talks about the fact that when he was caring for a sheep, if a lion or a bear would come and grab one of his sheep, he would go and he would chase that animal down and he would beat it to death with his club and with his sling. Now, I don't know about you. I just know about me. And I do enjoy some hunting. But if I'm out there with just a club or a staff and a sling and a bear grabs one of my thousands of sheep, I'll be like, it's okay. (laughs) You go that way, we're gonna go this way. I don't want none of you. I don't want you to want any of me. So like, it's just one of a thousand. But David was a good shepherd. And he wouldn't just leave his sheep to that. And his, his ability to see the one in the mass is one of the things that would make him a good king. His his refinement of the ability to throw a stone with a sling with accuracy and take an animal out. It probably wasn't something that he thought God would use to bring him to the destiny of being king, but you know the middle of the story already. It wasn't by chance that David hit his target. It was by hours and hours of repetitions, on seemingly small tasks of protecting sheep and scaring away animals or maybe taking out a rabbit so that he could make himself a little something different to eat that day. There was hours and hours of time spent on menial tasks that God would use to enable him to ascend to the calling that matched the anointing that he received as like a 10 year old. So these days where you wake up and you just get frustrated because everyone else on social media is living out your dream and so what you do with your time is you just spend it coveting what other people have when what you could be doing is preparing and refining very simple skills like your communication habits. Like the way that you manage your finances like your expectations of other people, your healthy boundaries, the way that you keep your house, the way that you serve at your job, the way that you keep yourself emotionally healthy. You could be doing all of these things, but we tend to, in our days of singleness, lean more into things that we know are destructive. And I want to challenge you, encourage you, wake you up to the fact that this is not a wasted time of waiting, but this is a time of preparation. Because there's gonna be moments that come where the, these skills and these disciplines that you refine during this time will be needed. And if you have not been refining, you're gonna stay in the waiting room because you're not gonna be ready to carry the blessing that God has put in your heart. And so let's fast forward. So David, he's car- he receives the anointing. He's caring for sheep and then war begins to happen. And one of the things that Numbers tells us is that people who were called into service of the army, they had to be 20 years old or older. And David has three siblings that are serving in, the, in, in Israel's army. And they're in this standoff facing off against the Philistines and Goliath is coming out and he's mocking the Israelites and, and he's, he's cursing the God of the Israelites and he's bringing embarrassment upon Israel. And David, so he has three brothers who are older than 20 at least. He has seven other, he has seven brothers total. So he has four brothers that are also too young to serve. So this puts David's maximum age somewhere around 16, depending on how quick mama was popping those babies out. All right. So somewhere 16-ish, could be younger, could be a little bit older. And he comes up to the field and as he approaches the field of battle and he hears the things that are happening and he hears what Goliath is saying. And the reason that he goes to the field is because his dad's like, hey, here's some cheese and some bread. Go bring your your brother some cheese sandwiches. Basically go be a food delivery guy, bring this to them and, and tell me that they're okay. Make sure that everyone's all right and then come back. And so as he goes there and he hears what Goliath is doing, verse 28, we'll put this up on the screen. It says, but when David's oldest brother, Eliab, remember that's the, the first one that Samuel was like, this one's the one, this one's the king. But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing here anyway? He demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. Sounds like an oldest sibling if you're the youngest sibling, doesn't it? That's right, the younger ones laugh in here. The older ones are like, shut up, Paul. (laughs) It's okay. We all know who we are. It's amazing how people on the outside and often people who should be, someone who's cheering for us, often siblings will, will look at us and question the motives of what we're doing before we've even really done anything. David's response in the next passage is what? I just asked a question. It sounds just like a sibling interaction. And so David is there and he's asking the question and Eliab is like, what are you even doing here? What, what about those few sheep? He demeans the thing that David's supposed to be doing. It's funny how he demeans. I mean, he just had to throw in, like you don't have that many sheep. Go take care of your sheep, king of the sheep. I know about your pride and deceit. He questions his intentions. And David, David hears about this and he says, God's with us in this and he exercises the faith and he says, why isn't anyone doing something? Like, like the God of creation is here and he's on our side and he's gonna give us victory. I'll, I'll go and fight him. And his word gets back to Saul. I don't even understand how Saul was okay with this plan unless he's like, oh, who cares if a teenager dies? Like I got plenty of people out here. But Saul begins to dress David up before he sends him out to fight in Saul's armor. I, I believe this is for a couple reasons. One is that if David is somehow victorious, it's like kind of, you know, it's all about the shoes, right? It's all about the gear that he had on. Like I gave him that gear, like take some credit. Maybe one of the things the passage does is it it almost echoes, like it it reflects like a mirror, the armor, the helmet and and the mail that they wore. It was like similar to Goliath and it almost paints Saul as kind of like Goliath and, and as David puts on this armor, it, it exemplifies his faith that he says, I, I can't move in this, this isn't me. And he takes it off and says, I don't need the earthly things. I have heavenly things that are gonna see me through this. I don't need to depend upon what other people depend upon. God is going to do this. And so he has the faith to just enter into the battle. And that's how most of us understand the full story of David and Goliath. That It was, it was David's faith that just enabled victory. But I wanna tell you that it's a little bit more than that. First of all, uh, I watched a video and someone was testing out and trying to You say, okay, you take a stone in a sling, how hard can you throw this? And they, they actually created a model of a skull out of, Um, synthetic bone that has the same same dexterity, the same toughness as bone. And they set it up and they threw the rock at about the distance that they'd estimate David was with the sling and it hit the skull right by the eye socket and it cracked half of the eye socket out and created a, a bifurcation, a separation from the eye socket all the way through the nasal passage, all the way through the top of the mandible, all the way through the top of the jaw. And it severed all of that. And when I saw that happen on that video, I was like, that would mess somebody up. Goliath brought a sword to a gunfight. David had fought bears this way. David had killed lions this way. And I don't really care how big the person is. If you give me the option, Paul, you either have to fight a nine foot human or a bear, or a lion, I'm fighting the human all day. And so David's faith was in God, but David's faith was also in the experience that he had serving God where he was in stupid small things. And I want you to raise your expectation of what you're doing right now. What you're doing as a student in high school, what you're doing as someone early in your career, that the way that you do things now matters because when you decide, okay, this is a really big project that I have and I know that it's due in like two months, but if I discipline myself right now and I get it done right now and I stay ahead of time, you will create a capacity and a habit that other people don't have because we all like to procrastinate till the very last minute. And so when you get given a huge opportunity for a really big project that's months away, but it will literally take months to do it, you'll be able to say, I know that I can do this because I've learned the capacity to work ahead already. It'll open up greater doors for you in the future. The other thing about this passage, the Hebrew word that it uses for forehead, it, it, it's one of these places where you really have to go into word study in scripture because it's, it's the only really place that it's used. And what it really says is opening. And so it's saying in here that it is the opening by his forehead in the passage. Some people actually believe that it was the opening in his knee. There's all it says in the spot that we translate into English from the Hebrew with forehead, it means opening. And I think that's important because David had a small target. He had a small opening. Most of the helmets of that day would extend down towards the nose. And so he either hit right on the forehead by the eye, by the eye socket, or he hit in an opening near the greaves, near the knee on his armor. But, one, but either way, what we see in the passage is pretty critical, is that Goliath fell forward. And so either Goliath was moving forward, got hit in the head, and his body weight still kept him moving forward, or he got hit in the knee, and he was incapacitated. It says the stone sunk into the opening that it hit, and he fell to the ground. And Either place that he hit, the stone isn't what killed Goliath. The passage says that as Goliath fell on his head, David went and took his sword and took his head. And it's gruesome, but it was war. And there was victory that happened there because of the refinement that happened in private. And I wanna promise you this about your life. God is not gonna ascend you to a point based on something that you did in public you've never done before. God is going to ascend you in your career and your spiritual health because of what happens in private and how you honor him in the secret places. And then he's going to ascend you based on what you have done with him over time and time again. God's not going to give you one incredible moment to say something or do something that you've never done before. God is going to look in your heart and he's going to give you opportunities and some of them you will seize and some of them you will pass by. And what I want to challenge you on is that in this period of time in your life where you have to be faithful and no one else sees, where you have to be faithful in all of the promises of the things that you want, they feel so far away. Understand right now how you live, what you do, what you choose. It matters incredibly. And young David's life, he's just simply characterized as a shepherd. but he's known as a man after God's own heart. And discipline translates into discipline. Dentists will tell you this. A dentist will tell you that if you have recently lost a bunch of weight, they already know you're taking better care of your teeth. It's a weird thing, but they'll tell you once someone gets disciplined about their eating, they take care of their teeth better they take care of their emotional health better and often it leads into spiritual health as well discipline leads into discipline that if you will grab one area of your life and begin to say i'm going to honor god in this it's going to make it easier if you if you say i'm going to get myself spiritually right and you really pursue that once you decide okay now i got to get physically healthy too it's going to be so much easier to get that healthy because you've already started to be disciplined And you say, I'm going to add to that my emotional health. I'm going to begin to take care of relationships differently. If you start with your heart with God, it serves as a foundation for so many other things that we say that we want. And if it's marriage, if it's success in your career, I want to tell you the best place to start is with that foundation with God. Because when you seek first the kingdom of God, everything else gets added as a promise of scripture. So David, shepherd, man after God's own heart, victorious warrior, king over Israel. But the king over Israel started as the king of the sheep. So whatever you're serving in now, whatever waiting period you feel like you're in now, honor God with all of your strength, all of your heart, all of your mind, and he will be good to his promises that are ahead of you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the example of David. The way that he was a friend to Jonathan, the way that he honored you when he could have tried to ascend to the throne and kill Saul on his own, the way that he made these choices that were all based on learning to honor you in small things. So help us see the the little things as big things we're faithful with few things. We know you'll entrust us with more in Jesus' name.